Let's pray. Father, would you indeed speak? And by your word, Lord, would you make it so that we smell the fumes of hell, so that we taste the ashes and we feel the pain, and we have some sense of what it will be to be separated from you forever. And Lord, would you cause the reality of your justice to make us those who are laden with a sense of indebtedness to those who need to hear the gospel and make us, Lord, like Paul, eager to preach the gospel. And Lord, make us those who regularly do preach the gospel because because your, your wrath is revealed in it. Lord, we ask that you would sober us. We pray that you would make us earnest. We pray that you would make us those who weep over the lost, those who cannot be silent. And Lord, we pray that you would glorify your name. We pray that you would do more than we can ask or begin to imagine through your word, by the power of your spirit. We ask that you do all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may have heard of a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was one of those intellectuals who has influenced the course of history. He was also one of those radicals who rejected traditional notions like original sin. He rejected that. Uh, he, he, he didn't think that things like marriage or family were important. In fact, he proposed new ideas about the relationship between the state and children that have been profoundly influential even down to our own day. And, and they influence the way that our culture approaches uh, the, how we should think about the relationship between the state and education of children and the state and the supervision of children and, and all of these things. And this historian named Paul Johnson, um, he, he set out to investigate the lives of these people who have influenced the way that, that things have gone. And what he did was he looked into how these people, people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, who died as a national hero in France and whose who is interred, he's buried, in the, in the uh, Pantheon in Paris. So it's this famous building. If, if you go there, you can see his tomb, and, and he's regarded as revered, really, as this, this massively significant and wonderful human being. But actually, when you look at his own life, you see that he was a horrible human being. And Paul Johnson details what happened to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's own children. So I'm, I'm going to read to you what Johnson writes. The first child was born in the winter of 1746-47. We do not know whether it was male or female. It was never named. And, and what, what Rousseau did was he took the child and he dropped the child off at the hospital for infants, a place where 
where uh, babies, 3,000 babies a year were abandoned there in Paris. And then they had four more children, so five kids in all, all five. This is what they did with the, with the kids. This man who wants to tell society what, what to do with children dropped his own, abandoned his own children. None of them were given names. And then Johnson writes that only 14 of 100 of these children, 3,000 a year, only 14 out of 100 survived to the age of seven. Only five out of 100 who were disposed at this hospital lived to adulthood, and most of those became beggars. So this was not a good thing to do to your own children. Rousseau tried to keep quiet what he had done with his children, and when he couldn't, he resorted to trying to justify what he had done with his children. And so what he did was he argued that he had done what Plato advocated. So he's just trying to justify his own wickedness, his own selfishness. He wrote, I looked on myself as a member of Plato's Republic. Well, what about the lives of these poor infants? This guy, Rousseau, his ideas, there's a direct connection that Paul Johnson demonstrates between his ideas and the totalitarian state. And what Johnson writes is that not only did Rousseau believe that the state should care for the young, but that the state should also control what people thought and how people thought, which is what a totalitarian state uh, pursues. And, and Rousseau talks about how this anticipates the totalitarian states that were disasters that resulted in so many deaths across the 20th century. Here's, here's why I talked to you this morning about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Those who do not worship God will replace him with some other object of worship. Those who do not worship God will replace him with some other object of worship. And those who do not embrace the Bible's teaching on morality, ideas like marriage, family, these kinds of ideas, those who don't replace the Bible's system of morality will invent some substitute for it. Now, I would invite you this morning to look with me at Romans chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23, but when we get to verse 18, I don't think we start into a new section, really. Last week, when we looked at Romans 1, 16 and 17, we talked about how in verses 14 and 15, Paul is saying in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, Paul has received the revelation of the gospel from God. He's been appointed as an apostle for the obedience of faith among the nations. And he feels an obligation to preach the gospel to everybody. And because of that obligation, he says in verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then it's almost like he starts, he, he puts himself in their shoes and he says, how are they going to respond to this? Well, they're going to think, you're eager to preach this message? This message that has gotten you beaten and shamed in public, this message that has resulted in so much, so many riots and so much turmoil in your life, you're eager to preach that message? And Paul says, yes, I'm eager to preach that message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though it's brought in, into my life all of this shameful treatment. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And now what he's going to do is he's going to give us three reasons that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Reason number one in verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. We talked about this last week. 
when people hear the message of the gospel, God's power by the Holy Spirit becomes active in their lives. Number two, look at verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We'll talk about this just a, more, just a bit more in just a second. Then look at verse, 17, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So I think what you've got in verse 18 is a third reason that Paul is eager to preach the gospel. He's eager to preach it because, number one, it's the power of God for salvation. Number two, God's righteousness, which is given to people who believe God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Number three, the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel, verse 18. So there's a flow of thought here that continues really from verse 14 and prior to that, right through this section that we're looking at today. And, and what Paul is going to do in verse 18 is explain why the wrath of God is revealed. And then look, look with me for just a second at verse 19. Look at how it says, for what can be known about God. And then look how similar that is to verse 21. For although they knew God, you've got the word for, a word for knowledge, and then a word for God in verse 19, and then again in verse 21. And I would suggest that that's marking out two units here. So that in verses 19 and 20, Paul is going to, he's going to explain why people have no excuse. And then in verses 21 through 23, he's going to explain what people did, how people have rejected the knowledge of God and exchanged him for idols. So let's look first at verse 18 and think about the way that the revelation of the wrath of God makes Paul eager to preach the gospel and unashamed of the gospel. You might, you might ask the question, what's the connection between wrath and the gospel? Well, the first thing I want to say about this is that God's wrath is poured out on Christ at the cross. Listen to this hymn, the words of this hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This is a beautiful description of this. The, the hymn writer writes, Stricken, smitten, and affliction, afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ, by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. And then in the third verse, the hymn writer says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. You hear what he's saying? He's saying if you don't think sin is very serious, look at who had to die to pay the penalty for it. None less than the very Son of God. And then he goes on, Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. The wrath of God is revealed on Christ at the cross in the gospel because, as Jonathan Edwards says, 
Never did God so manifest his hatred of sin as in the death and suffering of his only begotten son. Hereby he showed himself unappeasable to sin and that it was impossible for him to be at peace with it. It is impossible for God to be at peace with sin. He must punish sin. And so the wrath of God is revealed. Look at the parallelism between verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. How does this work? Well, really, what's being revealed in the gospel is the character of God. And God is a God who upholds his word. And God is a God who does what he says he will do. And the righteousness of God is revealed by him upholding his system of justice in the death of Christ on the cross as the wrath of God is revealed. Simultaneously, really. God's righteousness is on display in the gospel. And remarkably, look again at verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Because of what God has done in Christ on the cross, those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, the wrath poured out on him counts for them. So if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, you can be confident the righteousness of God is given to you as a gift and you'll live by your faith in Christ. If you're here today and you're not someone who believes in Jesus, we're eager to preach the gospel to you. We're not ashamed of the gospel because this is a message that says to you, you can be saved in this way. You can be saved from the wrath of God if you will turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Look with me at verses 19 through 20, where Paul, in a, in a way, he takes up the question, what about people... Who, who don't get special revelation? What about people to whom the word of God does not come? And in part, Paul's answer here in, in verses 19 and 20 is going to be they have enough revelation in creation to condemn them. And we saw in Acts 17 that, that he teaches there there's enough information in creation that people should have responded to this information by actually seeking God. And they're condemned because they didn't. So look at what Paul writes here in, in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. What can be known about God is plain to them. It's, it's obvious because God has shown it to them. And now what he's going to do in verse 20 is explain where God showed what can be known about him. Verse 20, he says, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What can be known about God, verse 19, is revealed in creation. And, and in particular, what can be known about God are, in verse 20, his eternal power, and his divine nature. Where, where, where can this be known about God? My little daughter, Evie, she's sitting on the couch this morning. Often she gets up in the morning, she goes straight to the couch, she gets a book. She's got this book out, 
And evidently, this book is telling her about an Arctic tern. It's a bird. And, and remarkably, these birds, um, they mate for life. So they, you know, they, they take one spouse, evidently, and they mate without spouse, and that's the only one they ever mate with. But these Arctic terns, they fly from the North Pole to the South Pole and back. That's amazing. That's astonishing. Something bred that into them. And then this week, as I was thinking about this, this reality that God's eternal power and divine nature are, are revealed in creation, and I got my, one of my kids' textbooks. This book is entitled, It Couldn't Just Happen. And, and there's a chapter on, in here entitled, When It Takes Two. Listen to what this guy writes about when it takes two. He's talking about two different animals. He says, probably you enjoy many kinds of food, but how would you like to sit down to lunch and be served a stick of wood? Wood is mostly hardened cellulose, and human beings cannot digest cellulose in any form, so we can't eat this, we can't digest it. Some insects, however, seem to enjoy munching on wood. Termites actually live almost exclusively on wood, yet the fact is that termites cannot digest cellulose either. How can termites, who eat wood, live by a food they can't digest? Well, wood-eating termites have tiny organisms called flagellates in their intestines. These tiny animals can live only in the absence of free oxygen. If they are left in the open air, they quickly die. What these organisms can do, however, is digest wood. So when the termite eats its meal, the tiny animals living inside its body digest it for the termite. What happens if the two are separated? In an experiment, termites were exposed to extra oxygen to kill their flagellates. Then the termites were fed their usual lunch of wood. The termites ate the wood, but could not digest it. When the same termites were reinfected with the flagellates, they were again able to digest cellulose. cellulose. Now, this guy goes, goes on to talk about how it's, it would be very difficult for the theory of evolution to account for this. Imagine what would have to happen for the theory of evolution to account for this. The termites and the flagellates would have to evolve ex at exactly the right time, together, in order for the termites to live. Does that seem likely to you? It doesn't seem likely to me at all. I think this is one of those ways in which what can be known about God is plain from creation. God has carefully and strategically designed the whole world so that things work, so that things fit together, so that termites have these bugs in their stomachs that digest the wood that they eat. It's remarkable what God has done. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown, to them, shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. Think about that that concept for just a moment, his eternal power. This is power that never had a beginning. This is power that will never fail. This is power that will never come to an end. We're talking about eternal power. I mentioned last week that I'm listening to this, this biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. He came to power in the United States Congress in the late 1930s. And he remained in power through his presidency. He worked all his life to attain power. 
And he finally achieved it. And then it was like dropping off a cliff when he resigned or when he didn't seek re-election. He didn't resign. He didn't seek re-election. The power that he had spent his whole life accumulating was suddenly gone out of his hands. And he was arguably one of the most powerful men on the planet. That's not even coming close to eternal power. God's power is everlasting, never failing, never beginning. God has eternal power. And in the use, in the exercise of his eternal power, God reveals his divine nature. Before we go on, let's put these two ideas together. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain, verses 19 and 20, from creation. And because people have rejected this knowledge, God's wrath is being revealed. The wrath of one who has a divine nature, which means he's perfect, he's fair, he's just, he's righteous. Divine nature, and he has eternal power. This is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, but eager to preach it. This is why. Let me put this to you in the form of a question. Let's say that you had a friend that you knew was, was doing things that were going to result in a government fine. If you knew that you had information that would help your friend avoid a government fine, would you share it? I would hope you'd share it if you care at all about your friend. What if you had information that you could share with a friend that would help them to avoid life in prison? This gospel that Paul is eager to preach, this gospel that he's not ashamed of, this is a gospel that will enable people to avoid eternity in hell. Jonathan Edwards, again, Jonathan Edwards writes, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. God is just. God takes sin seriously, thus Christ on the cross. And we have a message that will enable people to avoid it. it. It's almost like what Paul does now is he applies what he's been teaching here in verses 18 through 20 in verse 21. Although he's not really applying it, he's talking about how people failed to apply it. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is how people should respond to the knowledge of God. And at this point, I want to take you back into verse 18. Look back at verse 18 where it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. I think ungodliness is precisely what Paul says here in verse 21. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And we're all guilty in this way, aren't we? As human beings, we were made in the image and likeness of God. And, and if, if, you've, if you've studied this, um, especially if you've studied, if you've been around uh, our friend Peter Gentry, 
Uh, you know that these two terms, image and likeness, one of them relates to how you relate vertically to the deity. That's the word likeness. To be, in the, to be made in the likeness of God pertains to how you are supposed to, as, as one, a creature made by the Creator and, and given authority by the Creator, how you're supposed to relate to the Creator. Namely, you should honor Him as God and give thanks to Him. And then the other term, image, relates to how you reflect the Creator's character, which we're supposed to bear, how you reflect that to the creation and to other people. So these two terms, likeness and, and image, this sort of sums up the way that God made us. We're supposed to re relate rightly to God and rightly to one another, which is kind of summarized in the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what Paul is saying is we don't do it. Thus, ungodliness, not, give, not honoring him as God, not giving thanks to him, and unrighteousness. And, and interestingly, unrighteousness is mainly horizontal, how we don't relate rightly to one another. And ungodliness is mainly vertical, how we don't relate rightly to God. And, and these things always go together. If we fail to relate rightly to God, we will fail to relate rightly to one another. Paul writes here, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. I don't know if you've ever done something for someone and um, they, didn't, they didn't say thank you. Um, I'm kind of a sinner, so I sort of expect people to thank me when I do something for them. Recently, um, I was interacting with, um, well, I'll just, I'll just tell you the specifics. For a baseball team that I was not directly coaching but that I was helping out, I created this game changer page for the team. So I went to the trouble of setting up the setting up the, the team information, entering all the information, contacting all the parents. I did all the work for, um, for these coaches. And then I, I you know, th they, they needed it done. And then I communicated to them that I had done it, to, this, to the head coach in particular. And he responded in, on a text message. He said, make me an admin, which means make me an administrator on the app, right? And, and, um, and so what I did was... Um, I mean, initially, I was, uh, there's sin in my heart. <laughs> it manifests itself. And so uh, I wanted to say some things that I didn't say. Uh, praise the Lord. You know, um, the Proverbs, they have their way on us. And, and uh, one of them says, even a fool is thought wise if he restrains what he wants to say. And uh, so I would commend to you proverbial biblical wisdom. Uh, a fool like me can appear wise. And, and I saw, I'm thinking, how am I going to handle this? And eventually what I decided to do was, I, I don't do GIFs very often. I don't even know if that's what you call it. But I decided to search for the Moana GIF. What I believe you were trying to say is thank you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I, you know, I send that to this guy. And, and, and at that point, he's like, oh, yeah, thanks. You're right. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> if I feel that way... Over, over a silly little app having to do with a baseball team, the world, life, and the joys available to human beings. They did not, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thinking. If we reject the knowledge of God, we become futile in our thinking. Futility has to do with the limited duration. Futility has to do with whatever you do, it's going to burn. Did, did, you, did you see, I saw this headline yesterday, uh, Brazilians mourn the, the burning down of a museum, I'm, I'm, you know, the museum burned down, well they didn't even know the museum was there. Here they've collected these artifacts, they've collected these wonderful things from history, and the whole population doesn't even know it's there. That's futility. And then it burns down and it's gone. They've lost it all. That's futility. That's the way our lives are apart from God. However significant Lyndon Johnson is, nobody thinks about him today. I mean, maybe the people that read this book that I'm listening to. Um, but he's, he's essentially gone from our consciousness. They became futile in their thinking. We, we concentrate on things that just aren't going to last. And their foolish hearts were darkened. We, we, become, we become really, really, really gullible and foolish and stupid. Paul Johnson writes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, given the way that he lived and the ideas that he, that he uh, advocated, Johnson writes, Rousseau's reputation during his lifetime and his influence after his death raised disturbing questions about human gullibility. In other words, what he's saying is the fact that anybody would be persuaded by this guy shows how gullible human beings are. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You reject the knowledge of God, that's the path you're on. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Johnson goes on, and this is not just some like this is not just a Christian evaluation of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He quotes David Hume, who, who was an atheist. David Hume had once thought Rousseau gentle, modest, affectionate, disinterested, and exquisitely sensitive. From more extensive experience with him, he concluded that Rousseau, quote, was a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. Another philosopher, Diderot, after long acquaintance, summed him up as, quote, deceitful, vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, and full of malice. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then all these people think that this guy is so enlightened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it leads to idolatry. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. I think that's an unfortunate... I think the phrase images resembling is an unfortunate translation. I would suggest that it would be better for this to read... They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal man. The two terms there are the two terms that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to translate Genesis 1, 26, when, when it speaks of the image and likeness of God. So I think Paul is really meditating here on Genesis 1, 26 to 31. And I think part of what Paul is saying is, look at what God created man to be. One who worships God and gives thanks to him one who communicates the character of God to his fellow creatures, and look at what man has become. 
Not honoring God as God, not giving thanks to Him, and then unrighteousness, abounding to one another. And then the one who was made to worship the the immortal, incorruptible God decides, I think I'll worship an image of, look at what he says, mortal man. We're made in the image of, we're supposed to worship God, and then we start worshiping people that are supposed to represent God, and birds. Last week I talked about that people group in the Middle East that worships a peacock god. Birds and animals and creeping things. This is, this is the very language again of Genesis 1.28, where God gave dominion to man over the, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, the four-footed animals, and the creeping things of the ground, the reptiles. What is God doing in the revelation of wrath in the gospel? By revealing his wrath against this, against ungodliness, failure to relate rightly to himself, and unrighteousness, failure to relate rightly to one another, God is affirming the righteous standard and holding us to the purpose for which he created us, the dignity which he bestowed on us, the love that he has for us, that he sets on us. And the future that he guarantees. Now, just to summarize what Paul is teaching here in Romans 1, 18 through 23, here's here's what I would suggest to you as a summary. Man's refusal to image God. And, And here I'm thinking, you know, ungodliness, unrighteousness. Man's refusal to image God, honoring God as God, loving one another. Man's refusal to image God leads to the crucifixion of the image bearer, right? Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God. Our our refusal to image God leads to the crucifixion of the image bearer, but in God's mercy, everyone who repents and believes can be transformed into the image of Christ. This 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 is good news. Good news that we should feel a burden and an eagerness to preach. Good news that we should not be ashamed of. Whatever, however people respond when we try to go there with them. This is this good news. This is why we are evangelizing. This is why we're trying to invite people to come here. I hope you're trying to invite people. Please, please join us in trying to invite people to come on September 30th. Grab a stack of these. Give them to your unbelieving friends. I was asked, you know, what the... What is this thing? This is an evangelistic event. What's the goal? The goal is to get non-Christians in the building. What's the definition of success for non-Christians to be here and hear the gospel? How's this thing going to go? Is this going to be some kind of bait and switch? No. I love the Harry Potter stories. And so what I'm going to try to do is relish the glory and beauty of these stories with people, I hope, who are also interested in these things. And what I want to try to do is show the parallels between uh, what's going on in those stories and, and what's going on in the true story. And then I'm going to suggest where these parallels came from, which direction the influence went, you know? And then the, greatest, the deepest magic in the Harry Potter stories is love. Well, what's the foundation for love? What's the definition of love? How, what makes love the greatest magic? And then what's the goal of those stories? What's everybody trying to do in Harry Potter? They're, they're all trying to avoid death, aren't they? They're all trying to overcome death. 
And we got, we got magic that does that, don't we? So I hope you'll invite people. Let me also say this. Everything we're doing here at Kenwood, the, the reason we're, we're sending people to other parts of the world is it's all about trying to help people avoid this wrath that Paul is talking about. It's all about trying to expose them to the power of God for salvation so that they, so that they see the righteousness of God and receive it as a gift by faith. Now, you may not see the connection that, between what I'm about to say and this gospel, but there's a connection. This is why you should volunteer for the nursery. We need you in the nursery for this. This is why we need a volunteer, somebody to coordinate and organize children's church. That's a gospel enterprise because that's going to free up people who don't need to be worrying about that to, to concentrate on the, what's being preached in here or to give themselves to other ministries I don't know. We've all got different gifts. We, we're a body. They're, my little finger, my toe, I need every aspect of it, right? And, and, and we need every aspect of the body. So if you're somebody and you're thinking, how can I get involved? I think I, I'm a really good administrator and I really like kids and I'm really good asking people to volunteer. We would love to have you be the children's church coordinator. We need somebody to do that. This is also, this is also why we, I hope and pray that, that people here are feeling a burden to give. We, we, we need funds for the work to go forward. We, they're, they're, you know, by God's grace, there, there are a number of people here, and we don't want our personnel overworked and burned out, and we want to be able to, to help the personnel that we have and maybe add to them. We want to be able to add to and increase the work that we're doing. So I hope that you're feeling in your heart I'm going to, everything I am is about this gospel. I'm going to, I'm going to build relationships with unbelievers for this gospel. I'm going to invite people here for this gospel. I'm going to steward my funds for this gospel. I'm going to plug in at Kenwood and, at, and, and be part of this local church for this gospel. I'm going to help clean up after potluck for this gospel. I'm going to listen carefully when a brother or sister talks to me for this gospel. I'm going to cultivate a personal life of prayer for this gospel. Just a recommendation there. If you don't own or don't use this book, The Valley of Vision, I would encourage you to get it and use it. That The prayers in that book will help you feel like the sinner that you are. And, and, and if, if you read that book and you initially kind of recoil and think, I'm not this bad, you should think again. You really are that bad. You really do need the gospel this much. Sin really is that serious. I would encourage you to get the Valley of Vision and read a page of it every morning as part of your devotions. It'll, it'll be used of the Lord with the scriptures. I don't know how many of you took me up on the challenge last December to memorize Romans 8. Maybe you started and you flagged off. Pick it back up. This is why we pray for the Ramu Valley Academy. This is why we hope that they'll be fully funded. This is why we're engaging in church discipline, because we're saying to people, there's wrath, there's wrath coming, and we want you to understand that you need to be certain, and everybody needs to be able to see that you believe the gospel so that you'll avoid the wrath to come by God's grace in Christ. This is why we need you here Wednesday night for the gospel. 
In closing, these three reasons, verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. Verse 17, it's the right, it reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 18, it reveals God's wrath. Let these three reasons motivate you to share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know our need. And Lord, we thank you for a gospel that reveals to us and explains to us what's wrong with us. And Lord, we thank you for this gospel that not only reveals what's wrong, but also prescribes a solution and applies a remedy. Lord, we thank you for this life-saving message, this good news in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help us to do everything that we can to leverage everything that we are for the sake of the gospel. Lord, let it not be said of us that the sons of this world are more shrewd in the way they pursue their kingdoms than we are about the way we pursue your, your kingdom. Lord, cause us to feel the realities. And make us people of prayer. Make us people who clearly communicate the gospel, who love you and who love others, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.